0: Welcome to the sixth episode of Inspiring Minds, the podcast that looks for that little inspiration in these tough times. I'm Roberto Forzoni, and I must say thank you for being here at the start of this exciting journey. Now, when I started the podcast, I couldn't imagine that the first six contributors would be the six we've had. Pure class, and I thank each and every one of them. Humphrey Waters, Steve Koppel, Alex Welsh, Jeanette Kwachi and Alan Pardue kicked things off and if you've missed any episode please go back and check them out because every one of my guests shares a little inspiration and there's some real practical ideas that will make your life a little bit richer. My guest today is someone that not only inspired me and continues to do so but inspired the whole nation. There's loads of great stuff in this episode, but before we get going, I'd love it if you could subscribe and perhaps hit the notification button so as soon as there's something new on the podcast, you'll get it straight away. And also, if you can rate the podcast and put a review down, it will really help us going forward. Now, the goal of the podcast is to share that little bit of inspiration by speaking with some of the most influential people I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with over the years. And my guest today shares some personal experience that you will not have heard before. Here's a preview.
1: You know, the, the British government should be the number one team in the country, should be our best team we're all proud of. But they've got no team, rules. I, I've never read a book from any, any rugby player that's ever dished the dirt on anybody within that team. We literally walked in, of course... It was packed because it was a test match. It was a pub in Wellington. The whole place went silent, and I'm kind of at the front of, and I just, there's going to be a big fight here. There's going to be a big, <laughs> we're going to, i end up in hospital after I pick that out. and end up playing flipping rugby, which a sport I really didn't like. By the time I sat around, turned around, he had legged it and we wanted to have a fight with all these stuff. <laughs> So, this tame guy, he's gone running over there, and he's giving them this and giving him that. So, oh my God, so I jumped off the bus to police and I said, "What are you doing, you idiot?" He said, Clive, you mustn't let them get away with it."
0: When I lectured at Bruno University, he kindly came in one afternoon and spoke to the Masters students on their psychology course. It was the highlight of their year. Forget what I was teaching. Standing in front of them was that rare breed of manager, someone who'd won a World Cup final. Now, surprisingly, in the chat, he speaks as much about his love for football as he does the sport he's mostly associated with, rugby. He's a lovely guy, kind, sincere and full of inspiration. Welcome, Sir Clive Woodward. Sir Clive, the idea behind Inspiring Minds is to speak to people I've had the pleasure of coming across over the last 20, 30 years, people that have been influential, people that have affected the way I think and behave. And your journey is one of fascination to me. And I'd like to share that with others. It's been a pleasure knowing you for all this time. You kindly came to Brunel once and gave a lecture, which was the highlight of the year for those master's students. But can you start by telling us a little bit about your philosophy in sport and life?
1: Hi, Keith. Well, first of all, it's lovely to see you again. Um, And uh, thank you
0: for inviting me onto your
1: podcast. Uh, I think we've got to be brutally honest about things. I've I've never had a philosophy or sort of policy on on, on life. I've, I've always regarded myself as very lucky. When I say lucky, you know, my kind of career... Look at what we call it that. It's gone in sort of seven, eight year chunks, and things have just sort of happened. And I, I think the, the kind of secret is just making those right decisions when opportunities come. You know, the, the grass is not always greener, but I, I've had opportunities put in front of me, including, you know, becoming the first head coach of the rugby team. I mean, rugby, when I played for England and the Lions, it was a totally amateur sport. When I coached, I coached as an amateur, I developed my own business career. It's literally overnight the game goes professional we in the northern hemisphere would certainly caught our pants down we didn't know what it even meant and you know i get offered the first full-time job as professional rugby coach which is a massive decision because running my own successful leasing and finance company you know got three sets of school fees big mortgage all the normal strappings and suddenly you get offered a job do you want to be the first full-time professional coach of the rugby team so you're leaving one environment where you're kind of in control of you know what you're doing. Into a totally unknown environment, So that was a big decision. It wasn't kind of obvious decision. I didn't kind of apply for the job; I, they came to me, and you know, looking back now, it was the right decision. But at the time, you know, there were lots of you know question marks over it because it was a big, big call. So, I think looking back at my, I was looking back now. sometimes I'm retired, I'm still totally active. What I'm doing, but looking back at those sort of seven, eight year chunks, I, I can sort of hand on heart said, "Yep, yeah, that was that was a good call." there weren't the obvious calls at the, at, the, at the time.
0: Yeah. When I look at football, and we'll come on to that afterwards, your involvement in, in the game, Arsene Wenger had such a massive impact on the game in the UK as a whole and, and possibly around the world. Yeah. And looking back as well, Sir Clive, you, you had that similar impact in rugby. Can you tell me about what you did to change that mindset of players going in from being I suppose top six you might call it an average rugby team a good rugby team to being the best in the world how do you do that well again it wasn't a case of
1: consciously doing it I mean I I got I got offered a job and um eventually we you know we we got the contract sorted out and I I accepted the job And and I guess you know I was I was lucky enough to play for England I played 21 times for England and had two British Lions tours so and in those days, that was quite a long time, you know, because we only played literally six Nations games. That was me being in the team for four or five years. And in today's term, I would have got, you know, 100 caps in that time because of, you know, World Cups and everything that goes on. So I played for England for four or five years. And looking back, you know, it's huge honour to play for England. Like, be very clear, I loved it. And to go and play at Twickenham.
0: But it was it was an amateur
1: game. And my, my, it was kind of frustration. It was no one's fault. You know, with, you know I was working at the time for Xerox I was on a sort of a university graduate screen, I was like a fast track student and you know, Xerox were a great coming to work for. So I'm working for a very professional business organization where I'm doing well and you know loved it and thrived on it. And then the the the, the rugby team was just so amateur as you know, and I'm just going, I, I, yeah, I want to play for England, of course, but I want to win. And you know, at, at that stage, the England Despite all our numbers, we, you know, we we couldn't beat the All Blacks. We couldn't beat South Africa. wasn't in the same breath. It was, it's was hard to say that now. We we you know, England just did, almost weren't on the same pitch as the All Blacks and South Africa. It's something that just you know frustrated me as a player because you you realise your playing career is really small, it's really tiny. Despite the fact that I was in the team for four years, it goes like that, and you kind of look back now with no no regrets was no one's fault because it was just an amateur game, you know. And I remember saying at the time, if, if this game ever is your full-time job? We, we we could be anybody. We but we we were like so amateur, and but that was the game. That was the game. So you get you get offered the job, and suddenly it's kind of put up or shut up. You know this this is you've been whinging and moaning for this time <laughs> about, about what this and that. I said okay, well this is this is the moment. So you know the, 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 there's no secret I just I, I kind of didn't give up my business. Kind of I was running my own company. I I kind of took a Based in my mind, a couple of years sabbatical from it, and just threw everything, every ounce of energy at this new business, new topic, and and I, I feel kind of lucky because, you know, when I said my, you know, I worked for Xerox for sort of seven, eight, eight years for a big multinational, and then I ran my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned at Xerox. So, that I say small, and I hardly had ten people, and that that skill set was probably the best skill set for taking over a rugby team because rugby team is a small business. You know, it was 40, 50 people, and yes, it was important. I think I played for England, and but you know, the most important skill set was learning how to run a business and how to how to handle people, how to manage upwards, how to manage downwards. And I ran like a business. I just came in and throughout, throughout it, there's no doubt I kind of upset a few people at Twickenham, which I'm you know, still kind of still kind of reverberates even today. Um, but I don't think they knew what they were getting with me. They really they knew me as a player, and they knew me because I was coaching the under twenty one team as, as an amateur. They didn't know my business background or what I was. They don't know the real me, I guess. So I've come in now. Now you know, getting paid to do this, you know. And and the the, the first thing I got across the players, and you know, we had our moments, just like anyone does in your, in a in a small business. That you know, I had to get across them. You you've you've got a this is a once in a lifetime chance. This will be go like that. You we wait. I think when you are playing for England, you, you kind can't of think it's going to last forever, and of course it doesn't. Last for a very short period of time. So I had to get across them really quickly that we were going to throw the kitchen sink at this. And I was going to. but most importantly, I need you to as well. This can't just be a one-man person. I need, you know, I always think leadership, Roberto, is a two-way thing, totally. My other big thing, and this is based on my business career, that, you know, I just said great teams are made of great individuals. You know, I repeat it, you know, the secret to teamwork is having great individuals. And when I mean great individuals, my job, one of my jobs as a, as a coach, was I want you as an individual to be the best player in the world. You know what, Martin Johnson, Johnny Wurks, and Lawrence Dallago, Jason—all these guys—leave the team stuff to me. I'll handle the team stuff. Your role is to become the best prop forward, the best fly half, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to help you do that. And then, if one day I'm in a change room, I look around a change room, we've got seven or eight of the best players in the world, we've got half a chance. And because you know, when you're a coach, you only with the team a very short period of time. If you want to create a champion team, you've got to trust these players 24/7, 365. In the way they prepare their fitness, their nutrition, every everything, and their mentality, the psychology of the team. But it's every individual, and and, and that's what I think I did. That we really said about, I'm going to I'm going to make you the best player in the world. Leave the team stuff to me. I'm going to make you the best player. If I've got the best players in the world sitting so in the changing room, the team stuff becomes quite easy to do. And I see so many teams in business and sport get the wrong way around, where they're thinking, you know. It's all about the team, team, team. I don't, I don't believe in that. I'm also, you know, I pride myself on running teams of people. It's all about the individual. And rugby is a great team sport, but it fundamentally makes the individual. So it's a very individual sport. You've got to win that one-on-one battle. And, that, and that's how I went about doing it, really. But my, my business career, my career at Xerox and running my own small company was absolutely paramount, I think, to ultimately, you know, hopefully being seen as a successful coach of England.
0: I think when you talk about that culture as well, you mentioned teamship a lot developing that culture and, and getting responsibility, personal responsibility, you've already mentioned. How did you get that across in terms of that teamship element and the personal responsibility for everybody?
1: Again, I found that really quite straightforward, to be honest, because what I learned to do, and I just go back to my small leasing company, we had these things called teamship rules. And um, it sounds quite heavy-handed, like headmasters, your teamship rules. It wasn't, it wasn't at all. I used to just ask the, my, my team to use my business, my, my my finance company, you know, I've got 10 people. If we want to discuss something, I don't want everyone in the room discussing it. And you know, sometimes I leave the room, in fact, I get out of the room, let the whole team discuss this. How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? What I then get them to do is report back to me and say, okay, this is what we think. And I said, do you all agree with this? Then the leader can go yes or no. So in other words, if they come back with something that I think is great, I'm going to go with it. It's going to become a team shift rule. If I don't agree with it, I'll back it back and go, no, we're not doing that. Rediscuss this, think about this. I use one example time, you know, just a simple thing of time. I think time, and I'm absolutely erratic about this, I think time says more about an individual or team than anything can think of. So, like with the rugby team or my business, you know, we discuss time, you know, way before I coached England, what's our definition of time? So you know, I don't want to keep saying be on time, boom, boom, boom. And we redeveloped this notion of time. Time is not only being on time, it's finishing on time. It's understanding if you've got a two hour meeting, what you got to go through. It's a real understanding of this word time. So I just put that in rugby team, one of the first things I did. And they kind of looked at me quite surprised <laughs> was I was I said, I want to know your views first. And they came up with this thing about being ten minutes early. And I think it was John O came back to me. Because, so, you know, people like Martin Johnson, they were some of the world's best players, but but that He got this. He really got this. They've got to be world-class off the field of play. They've got to be world-class on the field of play. And so that time, I asked the team to discuss it. They came back to me and said, okay, we get what you're saying. If you call a meeting at, say, three o'clock, we'll be in the room by 10 to three. Our definition is 10 minutes early. So me as a leader, I read this, and I go, great. Yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we branded all this stuff. We call that time Lombardi time after a famous American football coach. You, you speak to any new player today, anyone who worked for me, you just go Lombardi time, they'll go 10 minutes early. It sticks, becomes a culture, becomes a habit. And when you get hundreds under of these things, that's how you create a winning culture. The key thing is to involve your team, but you mustn't delegate. You still go yes, you as the leader go yes or no, because they may come back with something you don't like. And the other thing, it's got to be 100% agreement. The team has got to be 100, not nine out of 10, because that one person might be right. So you've got to get 100% agreement from the team and the, the leader signed it off. Then we started to redevelop this whole, and that's what winning culture is. You know, it's just interesting today, Roberto seeing Cameron on the front pages. and I say this when I speak about this, you know, the, the British government should be the number one team in the country, should be our best team we're all proud of. But they've got no team, rules. They, you know, they've got no team, they don't understand this concept at all. Cool. Cameron today, with all the problems he's having over this lobbying, there should be clear-cut rules about what you can and can't do, signed off by the Prime Minister. You know, my, my biggest thing I've talked about is, you know, and this isn't just one prime minister, what, what happens in, in, in the government, you know, Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, a lot of them, as soon as you're not there anymore, what you do, you go away and write a book and you dish the dirt on all your all your cabinet members. You know, this cabinet's making life and death decisions, literally. You've got to trust the people in the room. And this, you know, you can't have someone then leaving in a year's time then writing about it, and dishing the dirt, and to sell, sell a book. They've got no team sheet rules. I've never read a book from any, any rugby player that's ever dished the dirt on anybody within that team. Not because it was just instinctive. They discussed it. If you're going to write books, great, but really be clear, the, the people who are making your story are in the room with you. They're your teammates. Are you really going to dish the dirt on them or your coach or a the, the doctor or anybody? No. You're not there to do that. And if you're not going to abide by those rules, leave the team. There's the door. Mm-hmm. You know, The British government have no teamship rules. That's why you know, every now and then we get we get in a bit of a mess, which which we are again on this on this subject.
0: That was a, another one of those examples, Sir Clive, where you brought in a teamship rule where some of the players were earning money from doing media work and obviously writing books as well. So they came up with this teamship rule that they weren't going to dish the dirt on anyone, they weren't going to offend anyone within the team. So another great example, I think that was quite forward thinking as well because you look now. The social media aspect, compared to say 20 years ago when these things didn't exist, there's there's all, all bigger challenges because of that. Not
1: a case. It's not a case of them coming up with it. This is led by me. I'm saying I want to know in this team meeting room. In this team, I want to be myself. It's not a perfect world. Every now and then, I may say things that I may regret, which which can happen. And that's what, what high performing teams do. Is you're know, you trying to be the best in the world, become the best number one team in the world, win a world win a world cup. Every now and then things may happen. It's not an ideal world. You know, things can happen. Things are said because we're trying to win. And you may regret some things you say, which, which 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 is possible. But what I don't want to do is read about it in five years' time, you know, because you decide you're going to write about this. And you don't you don't have to. You know, that's why I always I always laugh when Martin Johnson wrote a book after the World Cup. And you know, he sold, he was one of the best sellers, you know, but it's the most deadly, dull, boring book ever read. <laughs> I guess there's, not, there's nothing in it but it's a great book it's really interesting mum said you haven't got to create headline news or dish the dirt on your mates to sell a flipping book and that's why he's you know I you know he's probably the best player I've ever coached but he understood this in terms of leadership and management and he got it and he, he's he's as tough as they come he's a no-nonsense guy but he got this stuff and he was really good at and, yeah, really making sure the team delivered on this so that the team was a team but it's got to be led by one person, and and that and that was me.
0: And that that came across really well when you, when you lectured to the students and and you told them that it's giving the players some autonomy to to develop those rules within the confines of your vision and your leadership. And I remember you quite clearly stated if you didn't like it, it wasn't coming in. But I think that created a strong team spirit and a team bond.
1: when you know you've really cracked it, Robert, is when when your team does come with you. With an idea and say can we discuss this 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 is an opportunity and this can be stuff on the field of play this can be where we play in the game this can be our behaviors our culture all this sort of stuff. but when you know you've really cracked it is when, when your team come to you and say you know we want to discuss this and that's fantastic and one of my you know i love my little sayings you know you know great teams are made of great individuals and another one is that there's no such thing as a dumb idea you know if you've got an idea you stand up, you table it, you get you get out in the open because let me decide. It's not idea because this could be the you know the the, the killer move, the, the the brilliant idea that everybody's maybe intimidated about saying because they're worried about banter or whatever or peer group pressure. No, no, no. You stand up, you you say let us decide whether it's a bad idea. So you want to get this culture where ideas are coming through, and if you create that, and we had you know it's be looking back at that team now that won the World Cup. I mean. I didn't really know those at the time. I knew they were great players, but I didn't know that these are, these are bright guys. Just see like Will Greenwood, you know, Lawrence, Ben Kay, the guys in the media, Dawson, Tyndall. I mean, you name all of them. You know, Johnson, they've all gone on to great things because they're clever people. Um, and they're all in that room, which I have to say, to be very clear, that was a huge challenge. You know, Austin Healy, all these guys bracket. I'm often said to these people, I'm saying to them, well, oh, you were so lucky you had an amazing team. I've got well, absolutely, I absolutely every day I say how lucky I was. But guys, you try standing in front of that lot for eight years and looking after this lot because they, they were not yes, men. There were no pushovers. And I say we had our moments. They went on strike once. So we had our moments. But it was, you know, look, looking back, I wouldn't have swapped it for the world. It was just the best experience, you know, ever. And it was just just priceless. But at the time, it's not a philosophy, Roberto, you just throw in all your energy, all your experience at it and you just hoping to come out the other end. And I think anybody in sport who says otherwise, uh, I, I think it's on dodgy ground. It's not about it. You just throwing all your knowledge, all you're trying to do. And there's a lot of fingers crossed whilst you're doing it, that you do come through
0: it. But again, I think you were ahead of your time, if I can say this, because you actually looked at things outside of sport. You looked at all sorts of things that would have given you the edge. And there's a lot of talk now about marginal gains. But you did explore different things like the vision training, the psychology, obviously the fitness. You explored everything. And tell you what
1: Marginal Games, Roberto, came from me. I'll tell you where that came from. My saying was 100 things, 1% better. So I met with Dave Brailsford when I got my, you know, a great guy, Brailsford. I love Brelsford a bit. And he's, he's a complete sponge. And he was, you know, picking my brains on all this stuff. And I remember him saying to me, well, I, I, I get this, I get this, I get this, but I, I can't call it the same as you. And he came back to me. I'm going to call it marginal gains. So I've gone. That's a ridiculous saying. <laughs> and then of course, he, he becomes a superstar coach. Ten gold medals at the Olympics. All this. <laughs> suddenly, marginal gains becomes this, this <laughs> saying. Uh, Hundred things, one percent better. And he said, "I've got to think of another word for it. It's a marginal gains. I'm never saying. will never catch on that word. So, <laughs> but it's a great word. It's marginal gains. Everything. Everything he looked at." How can we make it fractionally better? How can we make it 1% better? Marginal guess. Looking back now, it was a great term, actually. Yeah.
0: It was but, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. One of my earlier guests was Humphrey Waters, who you know well. Yeah, yeah. He he would speak about some of the things that you put together, you know, the little sayings that came up as well. You're you're thinking calmly under pressure or correctly under Correct. pressure. Those little things you put in and and as you say, you know, do a hundred things one percent better.
1: Yeah, because I don't think you're, ever, and it's, you're going to be very lucky if you come up with one magic, huge idea that's going to change the world and make you win and make you a fortune. I, I just think it's in many ways easier to find 100 things tiny. and They all add up and in the end make a difference. But, you know, with the rugby team, we had all these 100% one you know But the, the number one thing was still the players and the coaches. You know, you can, you can apply marginal gains. You can apply you know, 100 things 1% better but they only work if you're applying them to world-class people. You know, it's like, you know, Browsford, he's got, you know, Chris Hoy, Rebecca Adlington, these guys. Great, put all the marginal gains into we had He we had the, the raw software in the first place. And that's what I had. I had this amazing bunch of players who at the time I didn't realise how amazing they were because you're right in the middle of it and we were trying to come as you said from sixth to first and, you know, and everyone wants to beat you, make no chance about it. It's one of the actual Great things about being English. Everyone wants to knock knock your head off in rugby. So there's no easy games. And we had a tough old team, but, you know, we eventually, you know, it was just a great group of players to be involved in because of the way we went about doing things. But there's a secret to everyone buying in. So we are going to, you know, we're not going to look back ever and go, if only we've done that. We're going to try it. If It works. We'll tick the box. If it doesn't, we'll just check it out. And that was the kind of the culture. We just didn't discuss things too much. Just got on with it. And, you know, can't praise the players, especially Johnson, enough, because great athletes, but they're bright as well. They they understood how this would make a difference if they wanted to be the best team in the world, which they they became by by some margin in the end.
0: I agree entirely, and uh, I've looked at some teams, Sir Clive, where there are a group of intelligent players, probably world class, but they don't achieve that success. So full credit to you for actually leading that team and allowing them to express themselves in a way that became hugely successful. I remember one thing you said to me that always stuck in my mind. We might not be the best team in the world, but there's no reason we don't have to be the hardest working team. And I use that philosophy in a a, a lot of football clubs I went into. You you came up with these key performance indicators, these, these key things that you could be excellent at, and putting them all together created what was something special tell me about those performance indicators that you would look at say in rugby
1: well again it just it comes back to the was well, as i said sorry, first of all in the, the individual how am i going to make you a better player i'm walking in the door at twickenham the first full time professional coach so to say the blank bit of paper would be the understatement i had a complete had, <laughs> had a book of blank papers so it was just a huge opportunity where you can say okay and then you just say, "Here's, and I literally, here's, here's these 15 positions. You know, what does good look like? How are we going to make that great? You know, and then we just went from there. How do I make that? What is the DNA of the best player in the world? How am I going to make that? And how can we even better at it? What are we got to, we're we going to put into in terms of the, the training. And then you say you apply that to every position, and also you apply that to all your, you know, all your your coaches, your medical team. You want the best in the world. You just don't want, you don't want anybody who's not the best in the world." or trying to be the best in the world, and always coming from the notion that we're, we're second currently, what are we are going to do to get in the first place? So we're always trying to push the boundaries. Then you apply the, the similar philosophy to the whole team, how you play the game, how you coach. And, you know, and this came definitely from a Xerox background. You know, you, you can't coach what you can't measure. People get mixed up with data. They, if you use the word data in sport, or you, historically, you know, you're called a geek and all this sort of stuff. You know, all I'm trying to do is measure something. And if i have not no data, I just, you know, 7 out of 10 or 6 out of 10. Here's a figure. It doesn't matter what it is. But how are we going to get you from 6 to 7 or 7 to 8? And then you put in a process of how you can improve that. You start to measure stuff. You know, a, a measure, measurement is purely you're not kind of beholden to measurement. You're just trying to just reinforce what you're thinking. And if I'm thinking this and all the stats and data backs it up, there's a pretty good chance we're both right. But just because the data said one thing and I'm thinking something else doesn't mean I'm going to go with the data. That's why people get very confused about this, and also you, you can you, some some players love data, they love all this stuff. Some players are hopeless with it, so you've got to know the individual you're talking to. Hence, you know, great players made of great individuals. You know, what are we trying to do with these players? Because some of them, some of them, you've got to make it dead, dead simple. Some of them love all the data and more complicated stuff, and it's just to understand. So the KPIs, they weren't difficult to do, to be honest. If you're trying to be the best in the world. And, and we immediately, you know, I wasn't, I'll, I'll say this without saying anything wrong here. You know, I didn't see the competition as Wales, France, Ireland. They were our friends. The enemy was the All Blacks South Africa. They were the enemy, you know. And I made that clear from day one to every player. You know, I've played in a team. I've beaten all these nations. I've won a Grand Slam. So, you know, big deal. You know, Will Carling to a Grand Slam. All these, you know, no one's won a World Cup. No one's become the best team in the world. And, become, and this is what we're going to do now. So we've got to get better than the All Blacks. And in fact, we stopped calling the All Blacks. We had to, I, used to, I used to go nuts when everyone called me All Blacks. They had to call New Zealand. So they weren't the All Blacks. They were just New Zealand. <laughs> but that, that got out. I, I got, you, you talk about social media. I got such abuse. From, and I was just trying to do it from, from a pure coaching point of view. We've got to take the mystique away from these guys. I was, I was saying as a compliment, they are so good. We've all got an aura about the All Blacks. We all start to shake when we hear the All Blacks. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to talk about New Zealand. You know, and I remember Eddie, Eddie Jones having some very funny words about New Zealand because he's an Aussie. Of course, you know, as an Englishman, I got huge respect, you know, for the for, you know, of the especially their rugby, where Jones, because he's from Australia, I had no respect for them at all, didn't even like him. So I so, was so, actually compared to Jones, I'm quite mild-mannered here. So this is quite funny. But they were the enemy, and we've got to get past them. We've got to be, you know, do our intelligence, KPIs, all this sort of stuff. Can we be? Can we beat New Zealand? And of course, we, we ended up doing that on a regular regular basis, which was my best ever game ever. It was not the World Cup final. It was it was a game we went to Wellington, and England won in Wellington, almost for the World Cup final. That was my that was my proudest, most mo- that's 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 the biggest combat I could play in New Zealand to go and beat those guys in Wellington with England and beat them well and be applauded off the field of play and get great media from the from the New Zealanders was. That was groundbreaking stuff to me. That was far bigger than winning the World Cup final, because I expected to beat Australia. I didn't expect to beat your Blacks in Wellington, and we did comfortably. So that team was, was was special, and we just blew away all the, you know. If someone said to you four or five years ago, England will go to Wellington and win, and be and win, win a World Cup, everyone just laughed. Yeah. But this turnaround was pretty quick, to be honest, in terms of what we did.
0: That must have given massive confidence to you, the staff, the players.
1: Huge! The, the best that we beat, we beat, we beat the Kiwis, the All Blacks, I should say, in Wellington. And we started to another game. <clears throat> all the players did all their rehab and went to bed, and all this stuff. So I, I took all my team, all my team, out for a night out in Wellington. Oh, it was just the best night. We went to this pub. I saying night out. we Went to one pub. Went to, it's called. I never forget. It's called the Hummingbird in Wellington. We literally walked in. There was probably about a dozen of us. It's all my coaches, my medical team. Everybody who's not a player, we're going to go out and have a big night out. This will happen to us. We literally walked in. Of course, it was packed because it was a test match. It was a pub in Wellington. The whole place went silence, And I'm kind of at the front of, and I just, there's going to be a big fight here. There's going to be a big, we're going to end up in hospital after I'll big that out. And then of this guy started clapping, started applauding us. There's just massive applaud. And then the, the manager, the barman or the, the boss, came out and said, I can't, you can't believe a senior so pleased over here, and the first round's on me. Wow. And it was just the best night ever. We just sat with the locals, What's the locals the Kiwis, and we didn't buy a drink all night. They they, they were not allowed us to do anything. And it was just, and then they shut the doors, and we sort of stayed in. <laughs> we had this just the most, and we were singing all these incredible songs. When I got back, we made a CD called The Hummingbird, we had to all write down a song we remember singing that night in the Hummingbird.
0: Brilliant.
1: And that's what sports about. Those are my memories. When I meet my coaching, we meet every year as a reunion. Not the players, the coaching team. Every time the Hummingbird night will come up in conversations, everyone agrees, it was just the best night ever. Far better than the World Cup night. in Australia <laughs> was great. The best night ever was in the Hummingbird, Hummingbird pub in
0: Wellington it was just huge. I often talk about with guests the, the beauty of sport and how it brings people together and that diversity as well, that there's no barriers, there's no discrimination. It just brings a lot of good people together and sharing their thoughts and ideas. And that's a great example of, I suppose, the respect that you command when you do something well and, and correctly.
1: The Kiwis are great. I just, and that's why I just, you know, I always remember that night. I always talk about it. it. was I still got a CD in my house. We still play it right? <laughs> just put hummingbird on It's always great old songs you know from the, sort of, from the sort of 70s and 80s and just an old pubs singing them I don't know where they came from but everyone's just gone crazy it was one of, those, one of those really magic magic nights I'll never ever forget it's funny as you can yeah. tell
0: fantastic when, when you're looking at players and staff are there, are there things you consider non-negotiable when you're employing somebody when you're looking at a player you're saying this you know, you've got to you've got to buy into this, or you're not part of the team.
1: I wouldn't put it as, as kind of black and white as that. What I'm, what what You know, recruitment is one of the hardest skills out. I mean, it's you know, the, the number one skill in a rugby coach or football coach is selection. I still think as the number one skill. It's way above tactics, formations, whatever you're trying to do. And just you, you made a very good start to start with the right team and get your most talented players out there, and then you work out your, your game plan around your team. I don't think you pick your team or any game plan. You got your team, then we work the game plan out. One follows the other. So selection is huge. Uh, and the same applies to all your, all your, all your team, all your, all your medical team. And all I'm trying to get out of them without making it obvious is just how, how ambitious are you? You know, and I, I, I want you to be the best in the world. And I'll, it's easy to say those words. And if you want to be the best in the world, you tell me now, what do you need to do that? What hell do you want from me? What's going to happen? And of course if you then put that in place and you really do help them become something special they'll never ever forget you you know and that's what I'm saying it's not because kind about of simple words it's about saying you know how, 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 do you, how are we going to do this and I want that to come from them because I don't know far more about them if I get the impression this person is really really ambitious they want to be the best in their field I, I don't care who they are what they're background is what the history is i just want ambitious people and i think what i'm quite good at is making things happen you know in terms of i don't think i'm very good at new ideas what i think i'm good at listening to listening to people saying that's a bloody good idea and what i think i'm quite good at is putting into place making happen getting the finance in place getting budgets in place and it's just a two-way process Uh, so i guess that's what i'm looking for and always i'm looking for ambitious people who really want to make something of their careers and lives
0: one of the things Steve Koppel said on the podcast was he, he signs attitude above anything else, which it, which was really interesting.
1: Attitude is a great word. I think attitude, and Steve's right, I mean, attitude goes across most languages, most culture. If he or she's got the right attitude, you know, but I'd I'd actually break that even further. Okay, how, how are we going to define attitude? How are we going to measure attitude? How are we going to coach attitude? How can we get back your attitude even better? What's going to happen to do that?
0: Yeah. I remember bringing you to West Ham when I was working there with Alan Pardew as a performance consultant. And something I've never shared with you, actually, Sir Clive, you came around to, to my home and my, my children were just going off to school. They were two two young young ladies. And uh, at the end of the day, they came back and they said, was that Sir Clive, was that Clive who won the World Cup? And to this day, we joke about it because in the morning they just sort of were going to school and said, Hello, you know, and politely left. But you came down to West Ham, you met Alan Pardew, he spoke, he spoke highly of you in the last podcast. And I remember when I was working at the LTA once and you came into the building and uh, I was on the phone to Alan and he said, can you say thanks to Sir Clive for what he done at Southampton with the training ground? And he mentioned the war room and just some of the differences you implemented. And he he speaks highly of you, as, as does everyone I speak with because of your philosophy in terms of how you go about your work, but your time in football, what are your memories of that? Oh, listen,
1: I kind of loved it. It, I kind of loved it. Stroke was quite frustrated, it, because, you know, again, as I said, talk about the start of the show. You know, you win the World Cup, you've been there seven, eight years. I I didn't think, you know, when that final whistle went in November 2003, if someone said to me, you know, in, in six months' time, You'll you'll be gone. I I would have gone. I'd have gone. (laughs) What what, what did I do? (laughs) Did I shoot someone or something? Mm. Um, So you know, it all went kind of a bit strange after the World Cup with me and people at Twickenham. A lot of huge amount of jealousies, which I've never really articulated from from certain people there. And in in the end, I I just decided it's time to move on. And and this just came about a chance conversation. I was just um, I was at dinner. I was sitting next to Rupert Lowe, who's the 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 chairman of Southampton. And I just talked about football. And I, you know, my no bones, I love football. It's not kind of a new sport to me. I love football. I never played rugby class 14. You know, I was always going to be a football player. My still big regret is, you know, my parents had a massive change of direction for me, which I couldn't alter. I, you know, I tried to stop me playing football and end up playing flipping rugby, which is a sport I really didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I've always supported Chelsea. My, my dad was born in Battersea. We've always been Chelsea fans. I remember the, the great teams of the 70s with David Webb and Benetti and all these guys. You know, I, I love football. And I, and I'm a bit like, you know, I thought, I think I, I was lucky enough to be involved in the kind of golden generation, if you can call it that. There's just this there's bunch of players and I'm, I'm looking at this bunch of players, the golden generation, you know, Beckham and Lampard and Terry and all these guys. And I just couldn't understand why we were, why we weren't winning the World Cup, why we weren't the best team in the world. So it's the same thing. So I'm sitting with Rupert below, having a beer and just talking about all this stuff and football. And he said, you read your life. I said, yeah, it's, just, it's no different than any other sport. I mean, yeah, but my background, I'm a PE teacher. in the, the day, you can take all this stuff. I went to Loughborough University, did a degree in sports science, uh, then did a cert in education. So I was going to be a PE teacher. So, you know, and, and then, of course, people are amazed. I said, well, if you're a PE teacher, you do teach every sport. You know, you don't, you're not not a PE teacher for rugby you're a PE teacher because you know how to teach and coach and it's the same thing so I'm with Rupert Lowen and then I started talking about rugby I was getting really hacked off with rugby because of these guys at Twickenham who were just you know after after supporting me brilliantly for seven, eight years which I have to say they were fantastic you win the World Cup you get night and all the stuff I suddenly are suddenly <laughs> so I'm getting nose everywhere and of course I'm just going you can't say no <laughs> you know so I'm falling out with people left, right and centre and I, I decided it was, I was going to go before they fired me, basically. And I, I don't think they were going to fire me, but I was never going to give them that opportunity. So um, the next time, Rupert Lowe gave me a call next day. He said, look, can you come and see me? So I said, sure. So I drove down the stamp to see him and, you know, going to the stadium at St. Mary's was, was brilliant. I mean, it's a great stadium. That took me to the training ground. And he sowed the seeds by saying, you know, if you ever do want to come to football, I'll give you a job. And that's where it was literally it was as innocent as that, and quite of course I was. <laughs> I'm looking at him going, you know, are you serious? What sort of job? He said, well, you know, you, you know, you, you've you've got no qualifications. <laughs> that was great. He said to me, you've got no qualifications to go to football, and I said, well, Rupert, I promise you, I've got no qualifications to go to rugby. I've got not a single qualification to coach rugby. <laughs> I started being a PE teacher. I've got, I, I did, I've never done a single qualification to coach rugby.
0: Well,
1: you I'm did like, all your football badges, didn't you? Yeah, but then he, well, only when I, I said to him, I went to a short, I went to see him, called his bluff, really. And he said, we'll, we'll make you director of football. Um, we've got a young manager, Steve Wigley. That was at the time I met with Steve, young, ambitious manager. He said, you'd, you'd, I want you to come in as director of football, but you know, privately, hope one day you'll be in addition to coach. And, I, and I, I said to him, I'll never coach, you know, if you're going to coach at Hampton, you've got to earn your stripes. I've got to go and start at High Wycombe or somewhere down the road here locally. So I've got to prove myself. And he said, well, fine, but don't forget us. But I'll give you the chance. I'll give you a year's contract. And it was that was it. So then it, it cut long. I short. sure i leave rugby to go to straight football. i say straight football a year after I was coaching the Lions. And that, that was a kind of regret in many ways because it was, you know, I'd left rugby and my mind was not under football. And by the time I got to football, um, Steve Wigley had been fired, Southampton got relegated, which you know, so I was gonna join Southampton, had never be relegated in their whole life, of it, ever. So that year I before I joined them, they had their worst season ever under Wigley. They get relegated. So I turn up now in my contract. Rupert Lowe's still mad keen on me doing this. But Harry's a Harry Rednought's manager. So I'm literally going to meet Harry. And I have to say he was he was you know, I won't hear a word again. We would we say we're different with the understatement, but he was just brilliant to work with them for. I and mean, I've not laughed so much. Oh, but gee, we had our moments, and we, we did have our moments where uh, it was. It, but it was it was just great. And when I went in there, Southampton, you know, I was very much, you know, doing all my badges. You know, because I'm a fully qualified UEFA coach now, UEFA B coach. So all my badges. You know, and even that's the story. I got frustrated with the guys up at um wherever it was, the the football. Where he did all his badges from. But I had to go and do session. I remember going to Milton Keynes on a cold Saturday morning. I'm doing lemon side session, and I've got this guy with a tick sheet assessing me. And he he said he said beforehand. He said, "Look, be very clear. I want to pass you, but just don't do anything. Just do it by the book." And that was my whole problem. I didn't want to do it by the book. You know. So, because he said, i been because I was going on these courses and kind of not falling out with people. I'm going. This is nonsense. Because everyone, everyone's doing it this way. You're just teaching. You're, you're teaching such fundamentals, and you, it's like driving your driving license. You just got to do it right to pass your test. Then heaven help you. You know, off you
0: go. Can you remember so, any examples of what of 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 doing it by the book that we that you didn't agree with?
1: Oh, just yeah, just." Um, yeah, load loads of stuff. Just take throw-ins. You know, <laughs> throw ins. Okay. So we have this whole session on throw-ins. And, and what I picked up somewhere start a stat somewhere where, you know, if you keep the ball for more than five touches from a throw-in, there'll be this word end product, whatever that means. So I'm going, okay, so how do we coach this? How do we how do we how do we coach this? And of course it was it was quite. Challenging because if, if they're going to press you hard, you know, to get five touches away, how are you going <laughs> to like you do five touches? But if your position are pressing you on your throw in and they know you're going to try and do this, yeah. it's going to be really struggling. So we had a bit of a fallout of that. Then the best one was I went down to Southampton, throws the, the long throw in, especially at Southampton. Rory de lap. Rory Delap, just throws the ball a mile. Now I'm watching this. And I'm done. And I'm just before I joined Southampton, Rupert Lowe's inviting me down there. So I'm sitting with Rupert Lowe. So what happens is, if you can imagine, Roy Dilaps playing left fullback, I think. So he's playing left fullback. We get a throw-in, like right down, you know, in in their in their in their third, yeah. You know, near, near, near the corner flag. So Roy DeLap's got to be about 80 yards away. So we get a throw-in. Of course, he starts coming to do the throw-in. And I watch this. Of course, all the crowd get excited saying they here comes Roy, he's going to do a long throwing. Of course, I'm I'm saying to Rupert, Lowe, what's going on here? So Roy, Roy delapps the best throw doing all this sort of stuff. So it's good as gold. He comes up, chucks the ball miles in, nothing happens in the ball. So Rupert Lowe said, What do you think? I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. He <laughs> said, Why do you think it's ridiculous? I said, Well, listen, Roy DeLap knows he's going to throw the ball that, like that. Ten Southampton players know he's going to throw the ball like that. Eleven of their players know he's going to throw that like that. Their whole coaching team, forty-five thousand people in the stadium know he's going to throw the ball like that. <laughs> yeah. Ten million watching on TV knows to... So what do we do? We throw the ball like that. I'm just going. So he says to me, he says, "I know she could make this stuff up." So I'm. I'm, I'm so what's, what's your view? So everyone's got to throw the ball like that. Every single player, because I I think it's brilliant. But what you got to do is quickly, immediately. So I said my my vision, but you know, my view is the moment the ball rolls out of play, the first guy in the red shirt, happens gets the ball. You get the ball, you go back, you hurl the ball, bang. You, our team knows that's gonna happen. They've not they've not got time to set their defense, so you've got a better chance at it.
0: Yeah.
1: Of course they're saying to me, that's ridiculous. <laughs> only Roy Delap can do that. I said you stop telling me only Roy Delap can throw the ball before into there and of course i'm just having these and of course i'm laughing because i think i can just laugh at myself on these i'm having these ridiculous conversations i'm coming over to jay my wife going you won't believe this now and of course and then they I here all these years later headline news jürgen klopp signs throwing in coach <laughs> i'm just going what, what's jürgen klopp you know is. You know, and I, like everyone, I love Jürgen Klopp, so I'm not knocking it at all. He signs a throwing-in coach. I was talking about this in 2006, where going, let's, have, let's get a throwing-in coach. One, if we... By the way, if they think the ball's coming in long, that's the time to do it short, get you five touches, because they're all back in the middle, waiting for Roy Delatt to chuck it in. You've got to outthink them. And, you know, you know, war. war is, wars are won by doing the opposite of what the enemy think you're going to do. You know, and you don't do what they think you're gonna do, or you're gonna get wiped out. And of course, I just kept getting to these people staring me in the face, say you can't do that. And of course, that's not my not my not my kind of personality. So this one says you can't do that, we're gonna do it. But you know, I was, I was lucky at Sam because again, I would spend most of the time sort watching because I wasn't really allowed to coach because I was a rugby coach, but that's another story. Um, I spent some of time with the youth team, and the youth team we had Gareth Bale. Theo Walcott, Nathan Dyer, McGoldrick. Goldrick. We had this amazing youth team, and I forget the name of the coach. who was brilliant. The coach of the youth team was not a, a, an English coach or a British coach. I think he was a French coach, and I got on pretty well with him because they were just playing the game. But everyone kept saying to me, "What's the difference between you know rugby playing and football player? I said, "Absolutely none." You know, I'm speaking to Gareth Bale. i might as speaking well to Johnny Wilkinson. Speaking to Theo Walcott. I'm as speaking to Bryan Taliaferro. There's nothing wrong with the players the same people. They want to do better. You know, that what was holding English football back was, was just the kind of, not, not, even, not even the premiership coaches. It was just the way that the game has being taught. When you get your badges, you have been taught not to do anything that's going to cause any problems because the guy on the tick box, and he said to me, look, I don't want to fail you. I'm going to be headline news if I fail you. Um, <laughs> I'm going, that's a good start, isn't it? I'm trying to come in with all this innovation, new ways of doing stuff that's going to make me go, wow, that's fantastic. And you're telling me, oh yeah, yeah the other thing, I remember on Prozone, you know, Prozone stuff. The thing with Prozone, you gotta get the players using it. You have to get the players in what's going on, because they'll come up with the ideas. That's what we did with the rugby team. In in what I saw in football, you know, players that's not their jobs to use Prozone or laptops or this stuff. And I'm still <laughs> okay. And then all I'm all I'm seeing when my first games in football was just seeing Every team, not just an but every team just free kick, bang. And of course, you're kicking the ball long. You've got most your team in their half, all their team in their half. And you've got like 20 odd players around the ball where you're kicking the ball to. So I'm like saying, why don't you just play it out here and play it out here? And they going, no, we don't do that. And of course, look at the game being played now by Pep Guardiola and Klopp and these guys. No one's suing the ball long anymore. Everyone, even without good players, are trying to play the ball, and I'm I'm just watching this stuff and going, "Why don't we just do it like this?" And of course, they're going, "Look, there was a great line. There was a great line from and I'll, I'll never say a word again." Harry Redknapp was a superstar, and I loved him. He was great with me. But he had this great line from me. Whenever he thought I was getting a bit out of my position, he, he just he would just say, "Look, just shut up and stop." Bringing your Johnny Wilkinson stuff down here, <laughs> and that was that was the moment. And of course, everyone loved it because he and we got a great. By the way, we got oh, you made me laugh so many times. Just don't bring your Johnny Wilkinson stuff down here. You don't do that in football.
0: But that, was, is, that is just so funny. I mean, thanks for that insight because I've been on the courses, the FA courses, and to get that insight from someone who, who came in from outside of football but within professional sport and as you say you had a sports science background as a teacher you're looking at the blatantly obvious and saying why and people who have been doing that all the time probably don't know the answer and don't want to explore so uh
1: no you just got the pressure they were scared to say anything in case they got failed or you know because they're trying to build their careers they get their badges Get there, UA. <laughs> and, you know, and then I ended up lecturing on there by the way. You know, then after sort of getting all my badges done, um, you know, I was invited to be fair to the effort, I was invited to go and do some lectures there as well. You know, and I remember, remember <laughs> standing there lecturing to Ryan Giggs and you know, all these guys doing their badges. I'm there lecturing to them about stuff, but they wanted it about rugby, and I'm saying, Well, you know, I want to talk about football <laughs> because, dude, look, the, fo- the reason this was you know, people never got. I was a I was a rugby coach. They they just <laughs> never got like how can you coach football when you're a rugby coach? They just couldn't see it. And that was after the media were just ridiculous. They just couldn't and they wanted any 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 little gap they could find. There was you'd headline news and ridicule and yeah. you know what was that? You need know, to about eyes before. Uh, I brought Cheryl Calder, who was the eye coach, down in Southampton. And I remember saying, Harry, look, I'm going, to, are, you, are you OK with this? Because I did. I, I said, yeah, sure, sure, get on with it. Just get on with it. And you just want to get rid of me, just get on with it. So uh, it was a press conference. And the press got hold of this somehow. Some journalist, I don't even remember this. And she's a South African lady, hockey international, eye coach. It's all about visual awareness. All this Brilliant. She was great for me in the World Cup. So I went into football and got her working with some of the academy players. And there, there was a South I game. Mean, guy. I wasn't at press but There was a press conference after a game. And Harry's there. To his press conference, and he said, and someone said to him, so, so what's this about Clive Woodward training the, the player's eyes? And of course, he knew nothing about it really. He didn't know what else to do. He said, and it, honestly, it was one of the best answers ever. He said, just tell Clive Woodward there's nothing wrong with our meat pies. <laughs> 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 there's nothing wrong with our meat pies. Of course, that was the headline news. There's nothing wrong with our meat pies. You know, slack and st- Cockney for... Um, for, yeah. uh, for eyes and I've got Cheryl Calder on the phone almost in tears she's going I'm getting into it. what's this meat she's South African <laughs> zero sense of humour would not understand Harry Redknapp on me in terms of she's going why is he calling her eyes meat pies why am I getting ridiculed and getting phone calls all around the world about our meat pies <laughs> uh, uh, that can only happen could, in football I, I could make I could make a, a best-selling movie about my year in football it was there were so many good times, but there were so many funny times as well. My other favorite Harry story: We're playing Holloway, so we're playing, and I and I and Harry's got, on the front seat with Harry, when we chat away, and we are all about a hole, and you know, and he was great with me. So we we I think we've had this great result. It was like nil-nil away nil, to Hull, and it was like a Wednesday night, and it was like wet and cold and miserable, and you know, football just literally the players go from the changing room. The bus is parked about 10 yards away. They don't speak to anyone on the bus back home. No social side, just back on the bus. All the players on the bus, I'm, I'm last on the bus with Harry. And we're walking out to the bus. It's got to be 10 o'clock at night now. And there's going to be about a dozen Southampton fans, lunatics, 40 yards away, just giving him all this abuse, <laughs> Harry. And I'm going... Sort of thinking sure he's gonna be this, you know, they're behind this barrier, there's a couple of policemen there, they're just giving them all this abuse. And he and he said, Clive, just ignore them, just ignore them. I'm saying, yeah, no worries. just ignore them. Um, so we, we get to the bus and he goes after you. So up up I go on, onto the onto the steps. So I went to sit down. By the time I sat around, turned around, he had legged it. And wanted to have a fight with all these anti <laughs> so, so he's guy, and he's going to run it over there, and he's giving them this and giving them that. So, oh, my God. So I jumped off the bus, the police. And I said, what were you doing? You idiot. He said, Clive, you mustn't let them get away with it. You mustn't. You've got to show toughness at times. You'll learn this, my boy. You'll learn this. You must, but he, he wanted to make sure I was safe on the bus. And he went running into the, just, what are you, just taking it off. And I'm just, oh my God. And I'm just going, whoa, football, amazing. But, and at the end of the year, you were offered a couple of positions, wasn't you? Yeah, I would, all that happened was, I got offered, of, so as I said, I was, I was, I was never going to coach at Hampton until I, you know, if I wanted to coach football, I had to start at the bottom. So I, I, got, I got two job offers, basically. One was with um, M.K. Dons, a guy called Pete Wankelman who I'd met because we played them in a uh, FA Cup tie, end up sitting with him in the boardroom, and he had no fear with me at all. He wanted to make me the coach of M.K. Dons, which I really respect him for. And then the other guy was uh, High Wickham, who was owned by a guy called Steve Haynes, who also owned Wasps. Was and High Wickham were the same club and and he, he kept saying to me, you know, be very clear. I'll give you a chance if you want to, you want to do it. You must be crazy, but if you want to do it, I'll make you the head coach at High Wiccan when the timing's right. And I literally spent it. And all year, I did at Southampton was, all I said to Rupert Lowe was, I just want a year to find out what's going on, to, to, just to get my own views about this. But then I want a year, and now I want to go off and coach a team. I've, I've got to go and do it. I've got to be the boss. I'm going to be in charge. And in that time, do all my badges, all my stuff. And, and that's what basically happened. And all that happened was, and it was a classic, I was literally deciding between High Wycombe and MK Dons. And then what happened was <laughs> Team GB won the Olympic Games bid. And I get a call from a guy called Colin Moynihan, who's the ex-minister of sport and in charge of our bid and all this stuff. And, he's, and I'd met Colin Moynihan in Australia in 2003. And um, I went to see him and he said, look, I've been reading about all this football stuff. I'm going I'm to make a new position, director of sport of Team GB for London 2012 and you know the olympics is a multi-sport event we think i think you're the ideal person and so <laughs> this, this and so i've gone home and and i have literally sat at the table i'm like you know and jay my wife comes passing what's up with you i said ah oh, this has really thrown me i said what she said, what? I said well i've got a contract here from mk dons contract here from high wickham and then i've got a job up here the director of sport for team gb uh, three Olympic games: Beijing, Vancouver, London. 2012. Six-year contract. <laughs> she just sat down in front of me, first time ever. She just said to me, "Just me. Are we really having this conversation?" <laughs> and I just did see the funny side of it because every bone in my body wanted to do the football job, but so my, my heart was absolutely going to prove everybody wrong. I could do this, and um, but my head. <laughs> Was going wow, this is quite this is a six-year contract, to Team GB. So I I took the, the team, and I've never regretted it. Well, I never regret it, you know, because you just don't know. What, what annoys me when people, you know, and they say people, I don't care what they say, but people say, well, you failed in football. So I didn't fail in football. I love football, every minute of it. Harry Redknapp, superstar. I got a real understanding. You mentioned Pardew, brilliant. When I see some Venga, brilliant. Met some really top people in football. The players were brilliant. There was nothing scared me about football at all. Nothing whatsoever. I just knew I had to be in charge of it, really in charge of it. And then I had two guys who were going to give me a, a chance. But then this, this this offer came out of the blue. We, we weren't famous to win the, the Olympic bid. And I decided to go that way. And so I, I I did that for the next six, six years. That's why another chunk of my career went to that, you know, six, eight, these eight year kind of chunks of what what I do what I do.
0: Which was hugely successful again.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. And I like you know, behind the scenes, I was very much behind the scenes and all that, it, but it was, it was I loved it. It was, it was, it was great. Again, got frustrated with the football team because we had a football team in the London 2012. You know, they didn't pick Beckham because, because <laughs> they're worried about it because too much fuss in the vintage. That's ridiculous. You've not picked David Beckham for Team GB. I mean, I, you know, forget his personality. and might just a sheer player. You know, the rest of the team from Wales, Scotland, Ireland—they all want to play with Beckham. You build your team around Beckham, and we—we didn't—we didn't—we didn't do that. I like that they've improved. do not be going back here. This is 2006 to 2007 in my year in football. I, I like to think, you know, mainly because of the you know the new managers coming in, you know, Mourinho and Klopp and Guardiola. I think uh, hopefully English coaching has not changed, but certainly what I was exposed to then to get my badges, my tick boxes. I, you know, I, I wouldn't stand there and just say, this is crazy. This is not the right way of doing this. Um, really strange.
0: What were the highlights of your time with the Olympic Association? Because I know one of the things you introduced was, was that integration between different sports and, and the, the personnel there, the, the athletes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was really, it was, it was actually a great time. And, you know, talking seriously, I mean, the... Um, I, I joined, I think it's 2007. So the first games were Beijing. So, you know, you, and you, you kind of, you know, all, all the stuff we're talking about here, I, I guess I just thought, well, I've got, I've got a dream job here. I'm director of sport team GB. You know, I'm not in charge of anyone's sports. I'm not really accountable. um So my, my job is to make sure just the team gets on, really, and that every team gets what it needs to, be, to do it properly. Because what, what you can't have, you think of going to Beijing, you can't have 26 sports negotiating with the, the people in Beijing. So my job was to negotiate on behalf of the training sports to make sure they got all that they needed in terms of training facilities, all this stuff. So you got to get close to all these sports. So that that was that that was that was great. What's just surprised me about Beijing, and it was a huge surprise because, you know, you, you kind of watch the Olympics from a fan on TV. you have mostly going, "Wow, that's been amazing." And what I found when I when I did that first games, and I was kind of annoyed myself because I was, I was kind of you know uh, not expecting it was. All these 26 sports, fundamentally, they, they didn't get on with each other but for four years. You got British cycling, British athletics, um, British taekwondo, British, all they to be different sports, different cultures, different 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 regimes, and also in many ways competing for the same funding pot in UK sport. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just, a lot of it is is lottery funded, so they they're competing with each other. So, so when you got to that, I was expecting you know Team GB to be one Team GB, and it wasn't they all wore the same track suits and go to the opening Behind the scenes, there was a lot of animosity between the sides. And, you know, I've got examples of that and, you know, just people wearing the wrong kits, when, you know, athletes wear Nike kit and we by Adidas. So there's a lot of, it wasn't a great, it was, and we got away with it because Brailsford won eight or nine gold medals on the track and we gained fifth in the games. But as a team, it wasn't a team, as, as I know. So I came back from the games um, and I got everyone together and, and made a, a really, impassioned presentation really about teamship. So if we're gonna have any chance in four years' time where we're not gonna be in China, we're gonna be in London, the British media's gonna be all over us. If we behave like the way we're behaving now is not as a team, it's, it's not going to work. And this wasn't easy because you know people at like Brailsford were going, look, I hear what you're saying, Clyde, but I am not in this. I don't, you know, I don't care what happens to these other sports. I'll deliver you 10 gold medals, but leave me alone. And I'm saying, you know, you've got to understand, Dave. One, one, someone from the other team can bring your team down. So we've got to get this team working properly together. And eventually, I, I persuaded him to do it. And and I knew once I got him on board, it'd be fine. And he was great. He was, you know, once he got it and really got it, and, and they became almost our kind of litmus test and things out handling well. So four years of doing all the teamship stuff really, we we got to London 2012, and it was fantastic. the you know. We were hugely successful on the field of play, but we were even more successful off the field of play. There wasn't one bad media, one silly tweet, nothing stupid happened, everyone did everyone got on. We we brought all the medical teams together. You suddenly had a whole kind of massive area in the Olympic village where you've got, you know, cyclists, an athlete, hockey player, all being treated by the team of physios and doctors and medical people. So that was I was, you know, and we we kind of yeah, again, when they finished, we just kind of pinched ourselves, going, "Wow, you know, we've we got through this." There's been a lot of subsequent stories around drugs and stuff that's kind of concerned me. If, if I'd missed that, between you know, not not Team GB but other other countries, because you know the, the the Russians, there's all that stuff that's potentially happening in London. So, but it was just a great, and I was just delighted to be involved in it. But it was, you know, I was not coaching per se. I was more i was I wasn't coaching at all, I was just running the whole team, making sure it worked smoothly, and it was it was it was great and London was such a big high you know and, and it just to see everyone do so well was just fantastic.
0: How satisfying to bring that, that those different cultures within those different sports together and I heard as a consequence of that, athletes from one uh, particular domain were going to watch others and supporting them in their in oh. their competitions. So, yeah, we
1: really tried to be, we put a big program together about that, you know, to make sure that, you know, when you finished competing, did you want to stay on? If you did stay on, we wanted you out there, you know, to support, support the team. And it was it was just unheard of in the past that other other, you know, cyclists wouldn't go to the to the stadium to watch the athletes. They didn't they didn't get on. There wasn't, you know, it was almost encouraged. And we kind of broke that down. We would we want everyone to do well, and we did incredibly. Twenty nine gold medals, third in the medal table for country outside beyond. China America was just astonishing.
0: That was astonishing, Sir Clive, and uh, well done as well for that continued inspiration. As I say, I'm very conscious of your time. I could talk to you for absolutely hours, but I'm going to bring things to a close. And uh, if I can ask you a few quick fire questions, Sir Clive, your favorite book, do you have one?
1: Yes, it's called The Checklist Manifesto by Atal Gwandi, who's a, a New York surgeon.
0: Why why such a favorite?
1: It's the word checklist. It's my favorite all-time word. I believe in checklists. I believe really? and, and a checklist is not a to-do list. A checklist is a list of key points that you must achieve if you're going to achieve a given task. Like that. He, wrote, he wrote this book about called the checklist manifesto. It's all about basically why some operations went well and some operations went spectacularly wrong, including fatalities. And it's all down to not having detailed checklists. So a checklist is what I'm all about in terms of coaching. And that's not yeah, a negative. Yeah. That is a clear checklist, what we must do, what mustn't do, must do, must do. And having alternatives, if that checklist doesn't happen, it just doesn't work properly. So a like manifesto.
0: Favourite film? Do you have one?
1: Oh, I've got loads of favourite films. I'm just trying to think of, I like to Perverse. I like One Throw the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, I don't know why I really like that so much. And I guess my favourite films are more Christmas films like Top Gun and Things like that, which you've got to watch every Christmas, or you haven't. <laughs> to live. So now I just like films I can put my feet up with and you know enjoy. Top Gun. I'm trying to think of the sporting film. I loved that series recently on what's his name no, on the basketball stuff. Oh, the the Michael film, Jordan. The Michael Jordan one, and also that stuff. Sunderland till I die. Yeah. I mean, how good was that? I mean, that's what not that film as a series. Yeah. That was just I, I watched the whole. That was just brilliant. I mean, honestly, that was. The, the makers of that film, I think, got that completely. And the only thing I still can't understand is why did that Welsh coach go to that? What, um, Coleman. Cookie, Coleman. Why did he... Wow. you know... I'll, I'm looking at Sunderland, but in that stage, I was only going to go one way. I mean, talk about a bad call to leave Wales and go to Sunderland. And he's never never recovered from that. Never, never recovered from that decision.
0: Yeah. Uh, someone I know well. You have a... An imaginary dinner party, you can invite five guests. There's gonna be six of you, past, present. Who would you invite to your dinner party? Oh wow, good question.
1: Hi Nut. <laughs> Absolutely. Dennis Wise. He was he was at Southampton, by the way. He was fantastic.
0: Was he Dave, there as Bass. a
1: coach? He was there as a player, he was the captain. Okay. I bring all that lot from football. I bring Dave Bassett. He was at Southampton as well. Harry Wise, Bassett. Then I'd throw in a few curveballs. Um, oh, that'd be those those three would be plenty. Chuck in Brailsford, because he's no angel. So he'll he, he he would like to have a chat with them, I'm sure, about football. And oh i probably, yeah, Arsene, Arsene Wenger and um Pardew would be great. I think that would be I'd love it to be football, football based. I
0: love that. I love that. And, yeah, and interesting cool. and unexpected. Yeah, it just it's interesting, you know,
1: that's what I said, I do gen and I don't just say it as a good word, I generally love football, I love the characters in football, um, and if I wanted to have a, one night where you have, just laugh, that would be, that would be it, and they'd be taking the piss out of me what I was trying to do in football. Would you get back involved? Oh, I've thought about that, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm running a, I'm doing, I'm running a ski, I'm involved in a ski academy now in south of France, and I'm involved in various business things, that's the, the biggest sport thing, is a. You know, we just spent 50 million on this place. So, I, I feel very committed to this because I, I wouldn't want to let anybody down because, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with them on this. So, we, we are going to create an Olympic gold medal champion from Britain in skiing. So, that's my, um again, people laugh at that now but we're going to do it. Um, so, not, I've so that's done. the only reason, that's the only reason not to, honestly, there's nothing to do football with warrant me. I just thought as the best sport, the best, biggest opportunity still for good people as long as you, you know, you, you don't get pushed around or, or, or told what to do by people with tick lists. It's funny, I love the word checklist. I'll never forget that guy at Melvin King's with his checklist. <laughs> so I've got to tick these boxes. <laughs> Just don't do anything. Allow me not to tick one of them. So I don't want to... Be very he me. <laughs> <laughs> did the headlines. Be fair to him, I, I did what I was told to do. I didn't try to do anything outside of what I was supposed to do. So I said, so I've got to play the game here, which was, which is the right thing to do? I'd have been headline news again. Woodward fails his coaching by at football, which wouldn't have been good.
0: In sport, we we talk about quotes and inspirational people. Do you have a favourite quote, Sir Clive?
1: Um, yeah, I think a favourite quote: "Any fool could criticise, and many do."
0: Like it. You've been involved with many organisations, business, sports, Olympics. What would you like people to say when you've left about your time with them?
1: Oh, I, I've always found that question quite difficult. I mean, I just hope everybody would say you know, it was great fun to work with. You know, I, I do believe in working hard. Our family motto, I've got three grown-up kids, our family motto has always been play hard, work hard. You know, work hard, play hard. So that would be, I tried to touch that with the England rugby team and we, we had great fun. I mean, I look back at that with you not know, the players, especially my my, my my coaching team. You know, we we meet every year now and it's just the best night. You know, that the frustration about football, I just didn't think I could I didn't have I wasn't in a position to get through what I wanted to do in in terms of and it would have been fun. One way or another, it would have been fun. And
0: um, but I, I absolutely think it would have been successful as well. I suspect that's an unfinished story and uh I yeah, them. I think it would have
1: been successful because of the way I wanted to go about things and make every player better, and just the way we wanted to play the game. So I just think the game must be played fast. You know, I just think there's there's, there's nothing in sport of the same. People who play fast win, and you got to you got to play quicker than anybody else. And that's easy to say, but putting things in place how you do that is huge, huge. Yes, every player chucking the ball in to the halfway line from the, <laughs> uh, the throwing. through the ball boys. <laughs>
0: If you so can't tell
1: the book, tell the ballboard It's really they made mistakes, So get him to check it in.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Clive, you've you've inspired a nation. <laughs> you continue to inspire people all around. And I hope by sharing this podcast, you'll inspire a few more as well.
1: Great. Right. Thanks so really.
0: Big thank you for your time. Pleasure. Appreciate it so much. See you soon. Take care. Enjoy the grandchild. <laughs> yeah, we'll do. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> See you later. Thank you. you. Bye bye. So there it is, Sir Clive Woodward. Now, while I was editing the podcast, I had to listen a few times and I laughed often and loudly. I never failed to be inspired when I talked with him and I hope you found some messages in there that will help in your own life. Now, remember, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, which will help us bring more inspirational people to you going forward. And if you can take some time to review and rate the podcast, that will also help us get more people along as well. I'm Roberto Forzoni. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, take care of yourself and take care of others.